Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Onsdor, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jerome DeWolf, director of the Center for Portuguese Studies and professor in the Department of German and Dutch Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Jeroen is the author of Afro-Atlantic Catholics, America's First Black Christians, published by the University of Notre Dame Press this August. Black Christianity in America has long been studied as a blend of indigenous African and Protestant elements. In Afro-Atlantic Catholics, Jeroen redirects the conversation by focusing on the enduring legacy of 17th century Afro-Atlantic Catholics in the broader history of African American Christianity. With homelands in part of Africa with historically strong Portuguese influence, such as the Cape Verde Islands, Soatome, and Congo, these Africans embraced variants of early modern Portuguese Catholicism that they would take with them to the Americas as part of the forced migration that was the transatlantic slave trade. Jerome's analysis focuses on the historical documentation of Afro-Atlantic Catholic rituals, devotions, and social structures. As we will discuss, Afro-Atlantic Catholics shows how a sizable minority of enslaved Africans actively transformed the American Christian landscape and would lay a distinctly Afro-Catholic foundation for African-American religious traditions today. Your own, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I was wondering if we could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. 
Yeah, Alison. Well, thank you for your question. And thank you, of course, for giving me uh, this opportunity to tell you a little bit more about my book. And, and maybe before I speak about myself and, 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 and share some information about my biography, um, I could say just a few words, initial words about the book. And, you know, what, what makes this book important, I would say, is that it presents a new interpretation uh, of the history of Black Christianity with a focus on, on Catholicism. And in that respect, it is a continuation of the important pioneering work that maybe you and, and some of the people who are listening to us know, the work by Father Cyprian Davis, uh, who, who had important publications uh, on this topic. And, and you know, what I tried to do was, was to um, just add more information and, 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 and also present, I think, a new a new perspective uh, on this history and, and, and what makes this book different, right? What makes this book different is, is that traditionally the idea is that, that enslaved Africans brought to the Americas their indigenous religions with them and then gradually they became familiar with, with Christianity. Uh, in North America, this was predominantly a Protestant Christianity, in Latin America, a Catholic Christianity, but nevertheless, right, the way in which members of the black community expressed their, their Christian faith revealed that there were differences, right? And, and these differences have traditionally been explained um, with references to kind of indigenous African elements that then merged with Protestant Christianity, with Catholic Christianity. And, and, and what I essentially say in my book is that we need to add a third element to this discussion. Yeah? And, and so I don't deny the importance of missionary work in the Americas. I don't deny the importance of, of indigenous African elements that were brought to the Americas. But my point is that in order to properly understand why the expression of Christian faith either among Protestants or among Catholics, among members of the black communities, all over the Americas is different, we need to add a third element to uh, the discussion. And what is this third element? That third element is that especially in the early decades of the transatlantic slave trade, a significant percentage of, Amer of Africans already identified as Christian before their arrival. Yeah? Um, that's essentially the central point I make. Yeah? And I call these people Afro-Atlantic Catholics yeah? because it was, it, was a, it was a Catholic form of Christianity that started in Africa and then spread to the Americas, hence the term Afro-Atlantic. Um, and although these were, these were relatively small um, groups of people, it is important to stress that they were the first ones, and they were the first black Christians in the Americas. And, and therefore, what I tried to demonstrate in my book is that they were to have a major influence on, on the religious, the social, the cultural identity formation of black communities all over the Americas, including here in, in North America. And, and that brings me also then to my biography. Right? Because why do I look at this history from a different uh, perspective? And, and that certainly has to do, partly at least, with, with, with the fact that I, I came relatively late um, to the United States. I was not educated uh, in the United States. I, I grew up as, as a Catholic in the Flemish part of, of Belgium. 
and I later um, spent over 10 years of my life in Portugal, also in Brazil. And, and then I came to Berkeley uh, in, in 2007, uh, where, as you said, I, I direct the Dutch Studies program, also director currently of the Institute of European Studies and its Center for Portuguese um, Studies. Uh, very interested in both Dutch and, and Portuguese colonial history, especially cultural and, and social uh, aspects of it. Um, and, and I think what was very important for, for this book in, in particular was that while living in, in, in Portugal and, and Brazil, um, I, I became fascinated with, with the um, Catholicism um, that, that in many ways was different from the type of Catholicism I was familiar with in, in Belgium. Um, and I, be I became especially fascinated with, with the Catholicism of members of Brazil's black community. You know, a type of Catholicism where the role of saints is crucial, uh, the role of the Virgin Mary, uh, the importance of making vows, you know, promises uh, to saints, the importance of processions with, with drum music and dance. And, and I brought all of this with me. Uh, when I came to the United States in, in 2007. And when finding original sources about black communities here in North America, and then looking at how historians in North America had, had interpreted uh, those stories, I felt uncomfortable uh, with some of the interpretations. And, and, and why was that? Well, essentially what I felt is, is that the traditional perspective on, on those sources had been an Anglo-Saxon perspective. Yeah? And, and my perspective, of course, considering my own background, was much more an, an, an Iberian uh, perspective. And, and that made me, I think, come to, to different uh, conclusions uh, and allowed me to, to bring you know, a new perspective uh, and present that in, in, in the book we are discussing here uh, today. Yeah, and you know, that leads us pretty much into my next question uh, about your research methodology. Um, you're using a comparative methodology comparing the North American sources about social, cultural, and religious practices among enslaved community members to sources from Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbeans. Can you tell us about your research process and, you know, what were some challenges that you ran into? Yeah. Well, let me perhaps start by, by saying a few words on, on how this book project started, actually. And, and, and it started um, uh, in Manhattan. Uh, it started in Manhattan, where I was working on the early Dutch history of Manhattan, you know, at, at the time when, when Manhattan was still called New Amsterdam in, in the 17th century. And, and I became fascinated um, with the information I discovered about the earliest um, uh, African community uh, in Manhattan in the 17th century. Um, and, and what surprised me was that all these people had Portuguese names. Yeah? Um, they were called uh, Maria, or uh, Manuel or, or Sebastião, so, so typically Portuguese names, right? Um, and, and that raised, you know, a lot of questions. Well, what does, what does that mean, right, when, when they have Portuguese names? Does that mean, for instance, 
um, that uh, the Portuguese language also had an importance to this community. And I did research into language, and indeed I was able to uncover um, some fascinating information that, that shows us that the first language that allowed uh, people who came from different parts of Africa to the Americas to communicate among themselves, that first language was not English, it was not Dutch, it was not French, but it was Portuguese. Uh, or you know, an Afro-Portuguese pidgin, so to speak, that allowed these people to communicate uh, among themselves. Uh, I then looked at culture, right? And I raised the question, well, you know, if, if, if they, um, you know, were able to communicate in Portuguese, if they had Portuguese names, were they influenced by Portuguese cultural traditions? And I looked at this at an earlier, in an earlier book uh, of mine um, called uh, The Pinkster King. Um, and, and, and all of that then led to the third question, namely the topic of religion. Because right? um, if these people had Portuguese names, that, that means something. And what it means is they had been baptized. Right? They had been baptized as Catholics. They were given Iberian names. But, but what does that mean? Right? How, how, how Catholic were they? Um, and, and, and that, of course, is, is a difficult question uh, to answer, considering that there is very little data. Uh, on the earliest enslaved communities in, in North America, including the ones that were living in Manhattan in the 17th century. And, and so the only alternative uh, for me, Alison, really was, was to use, as, as you said, was to use a comparative uh, methodology. In other, in other words, what you try to do is, is you try to look for other parts of the world where similar communities uh, lived, right? Uh, and then you try to find out, um, is there more information in other parts of the world that can help us understand what may have occurred within these communities uh, in, in North America? And, and that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it means that you have to um, you know, do, a, do a tremendous amount of reading. Uh, this book is, is really the result of, of more than 10 years of, of research. Um, it's, of course, reading in, in multiple languages. And, and here, one of the advantages of growing up in, in you know, the Flemish part of Belgium is that already at a young age, um, you, you become fluent in other foreign languages. Right? Um, so I, I used sources in Latin, in Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, French, Dutch, German, because without those languages, you can't really access um, those, 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 those sources. Um, of course, I had my limitations as well. That's that's obvious. Uh, most of my research uh, took place in Portugal, uh, in the National Archives, the National Library, and and Portugal was was for me the point of departure. Uh, and all you know, all over the book, there's constant references um, to uh, to Portugal, and 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 that's I think you know part of of what makes this book special. Right, that that essentially what I what I what I highlight and what I stress time and again in my book is is the crucial importance of the historical Portuguese presence in Africa, uh, in particular when it comes to understanding the development of of Black um, Christianity, and and you know time and again, I I when when preparing my book and and, and writing earlier versions, I, I ran into to studies right from, from American colleagues who denied this this importance of the Portuguese 
presence in Africa when it comes to you know the development of of, of Christianity, um, even even by very established scholars. Right? I'm thinking of someone like John Butler, you know, who who in his book uh, speaks about an African spiritual holocaust, right? Uh, which which is problematic because then you end up telling the history of African American Christianity almost as if it was a white history and, and it was clearly it was not right that it was already since the 17th century a specifically African variant of Christianity in in North America a Catholic um, form of Christianity um, I'm also thinking of of someone like uh, Albert Raboteau. You know, a scholar I, I deeply respect and, and whose work I, I admire. But, but when I read in his famous book, Slave Religion, right, that, that, that the Portuguese presence in, in Africa was not really important. Uh, you can summarize that in two, three sentences. I, I don't agree. Right? I don't agree. And I feel an urge to present, you know, my perspective and, 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 and try to explain, you know, why I feel um, this is an important topic. Uh, why we need to look into that, um, um, and I hope you know that that my book will will contribute um, to to this discussion. Right. Yeah. And you've kind of answered one of my uh, questions I had lined up about the influence and impact of the Portuguese on these Afro. Um, Atlantic Catholics. It's, it's such a crucial part of your book. But, you know, you're looking at popular or folk Catholicism with, you know, a focus on rituals, that being baptisms, marriage, burial, saint devotion, so prayers, curses, ex-voodoos, vows, and uh, social structures such as brotherhoods and uh, confraternities. And why did you want to uh, examine these aspects of uh, Afro-Atlantic Catholicism? What did you find when you looked at these practices? Yeah, well, you know, these practices are, are, are crucial here um, because they help us to understand why previous scholars, I think, have tended to, to underestimate or even to, to misunderstand what, what this Portuguese influence in Africa was was all about, and and there is two points here, you know, uh, traditional studies, right? Traditional studies on on, on Christianity in Africa um, have a tendency to focus on missionaries, right, and the role of missionaries and the importance of missionaries, and and my conclusion in my book is that this perspective is 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 wrong in the sense that, that it was not missionaries who were, who were the driving force here. Um, the driving force really was communities, communities who embraced the new faith and then organized themselves in, in lay societies, um, a type of brotherhoods, sodalities, where they had you know, their own form of, of Christianity. And they were really the driving force, much more than, than European missionaries who, who come uh, to Africa. And, and the second point I, I stress is, is that the Portuguese introduced um, Christianity in Africa in, in the 15th century, right? In other words, they did so before the Council of Trent, Right, um, and and as you know, the Council of Trent would of course change Christianity, change Catholicism in, in a dramatic way 
um, in, in Europe. Um, so if we want to understand um, the type of, of Christianity that was brought to Africa, we have to look at this early form of, of Catholicism and the way it was lived in Portuguese um, society. Um, and I think that was perhaps the most crucial mistake here, that most scholars who have looked at the history of Christianity in Africa, they have tended to look at it from a post-Tridentine perspective, or even worse, from a Reformed uh, perspective. And of course, if you do that, then you completely misunderstand the type of Christianity that the Portuguese brought um, to, to Africa, right? And this is also the reason why my book starts in Portugal um, and where I raise the question, what do we know about this pre-Tridentine form of Catholicism that the Portuguese would then take to Africa, right? Um, and, and perhaps I can mention two characteristics of it that, that are crucial. Um, the first one is, is the role of saints, right? And, and the practice of, of making vows um, to saints, so making promises, right? You, you make in a way a deal with a saint, right? And, and then you have to stick to that deal um, because a typical characteristic of Tridentine um, Catholicism is, is that, um, you know, saints are tricky um, and, and saints can be jealous, uh, can even be vengeful if you make a promise and then you don't stick to your word, right? Um, uh, equally important is, is, is the tremendous concern with spiritual afterlife, uh, or what the Portuguese used to call uma boa morte, so a good death, um, yeah, where it was believed that as long as, as a promise you made remained unfulfilled, because it could happen, right? You make a, a promise to St. Anthony, for instance, and then all of a sudden you pass away. And, 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 and so it was, people believe that if that happens, you have a major problem because it means that, that your soul will be in trouble. Yeah. Or your soul will be in pain and then others have to fulfill uh, your promise, etc. So there was, there was all these concerns about making vows and, and making sure that those vows are, are fulfilled. And then the second aspect was, was the role of brotherhoods, right? Um, it, was, it was really in the form of, of, of brotherhoods that, that Christians formed a congregation, honored tradition, practiced rituals, and provided solidarity with their brothers and sisters, both the living and, and the deceased, right? Um, so these are, are two very important characteristics that I, that I uh, stress really um, um, in, in, in my book. And, and then from Portugal, I, I move on, right? And then I go to Africa and I begin, of course, in, in the Cape Verde Islands, as you mentioned before. Cape Verde Islands, a crucial, crucial uh, place in the world to understand uh, black Christianity um, because this is where this story begins, right? It's, it's, it's the earliest place in Africa where, where, where you have um, a Portuguese colonization and then you have people who, um, 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 you know, um, were brought to these islands as, um, as, as, as enslaved people, uh, become familiar uh, with this, this, this early form of, of, of Catholicism and they are the ones then to, to, to arrive in, in, in the Americas as, as America's first black Christians, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm very surprised, Alison, to be honest with you, how little research uh, scholars in the United States have done about the Cape Verde Islands. Yeah, C 
crucial place in the world, I would say, to understand the transatlantic slavery. And very important, of course, the Congo region. Yeah, because when we speak about numbers, yeah, then of course the Congo region is is, is much more important. Um, great research here that I could take advantage of. Research by scholars like John Thornton, uh, very important uh, for for this book. Um, and then from Africa, um, I, I I move on and I and I cross the Atlantic, so to speak, right? And I take my readers to Latin America, uh, to the Caribbean. Uh, and then ultimately also um, to uh, North America, right? where, I, where I demonstrate that, that the first black Christians uh, were actually people who you know, were familiar with this, with this um, um, for African form of, of Catholicism. Um, and that also many of the first black Protestants uh, in North America um, you know, were people who came from that community. Um, and and that then raises the question: Well, what was the impact of these people on you know the ongoing evolution of of Christianity within Black communities in um, in uh, North America? Um, and 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 that um, becomes then the final chapter uh, of my book, um, where I focus on on the importance of uh, mutual aid, uh, brotherhoods. Um, in the context of, of uh, Black Methodist and, and Baptist um, churches um, um, and, and how we uh, could potentially trace um, those elements back um, to um, um, early forms of brotherhoods. Um, and, and that essentially then um, yeah, leads to, to the conclusion uh, of the book. And I think that, that gives you a little bit of, a, of, a, of an overview, right, of, of how the book um, is, is structured. Yeah, and I've got a couple questions about different aspects that you've just summarized. But what I found really interesting about your book is when, you know, we're comparing or looking at the white Catholics and the black African Catholics in uh, these African regions and uh, the performances of rituals, right? And so I was wondering if you'd talk about uh, these, the observations, what are, what you observed when you examined the traditions performed by uh, black Catholics in Africa, white Catholics and uh, enslaved Catholics, you know, what were the, what were their major changes and how one group of Catholics performed, you know, say a burial ceremony or how brotherhoods and uh, convenieries were uh, uh, run? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's a very good question, Alison, because there are crucial differences here, right? Um, Essentially, what I would say is, you know, had uh, Irish or, 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 or Catholic German immigrants um, come to the United, come to North America in, in the 16th, 17th century, right? Um, these, these differences would have been, you know, much less noticeable. Um, um, but they immigrated later, right? And, and, um, so, so the point that I that I tried to, to, to the best answer perhaps to, to your question really is that um, uh, European Catholics who came to North America, they brought to North America a, a post-Tridentine form of Catholicism, 
right? Um, and, and to these people, um, a pre-Tridentine form of, of Catholicism of Portuguese origin, and then particularly a pre-Tridentine form of Portuguese Catholicism mixed with indigenous African elements that to them, right, um, looked almost like a foreign religion, right? Um, um, to the point that these that these Christian elements, um, these these Catholic elements, um, are hardly recognizable um, as Catholic to you, right? Um, and I could give an example, Alison. Um, let me let me let me exemplify what I'm trying to say with a reference to um, to funerals, right? And and because because what do you see in the case of funerals? You see something happening within those those Afro-Atlantic Catholic communities, right? What what, what you see is is um, a lot of um, scenes where people all of a sudden start to dance and then they start to sing and 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 they laugh and they seem to have fun, right? At, at a funeral, and and I think you agree with me that that if you are a 19th century person coming from Ireland and and you see that. You, you consider this disrespectful, right? Um, and 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 if you try to explain it, what comes to your mind is, oh, this is probably some type of indigenous African influence here, right? This has nothing to do with Christianity, and 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 here I think we have to be careful. It's not that I deny that 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 you know there may well have been you know a, a, an importance here um, uh, when it comes to indigenous African influences, but but we should not forget that that in in pre-Tridentine Catholicism, yeah, this was very common. This was very common in the sense that people were convinced, Alison, that that saints hated sadness. Saints hated sadness, and 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 why was that? Um, because people believed that that saints considered grief a form of human protest against decisions, right? That humans could not understand, and and for this reason, right, people believed that it was important to 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 break the sadness, even even during funerals, uh, in order not to upset the saints. Yeah. Um, and, and people were, were, were concerned with that because the, the conviction was that saints can be vengeful and they can be jealous, they can be annoying and, and they can punish you. Um, so it was important to constantly you know, be aware of that, um, that you could not upset the saints. And if you would do so, this could have consequences. Yeah? Um, and, and this is the point I would want to stress, right? If you see this happening, um, and you're unfamiliar with these traditions, you, you're inclined to say, well, this has nothing to do with, with Christianity, it's nothing to do with, with Catholicism. And, and the reality is, is it, it does, right? It, it reflects a, a, a pre-Tridentine understanding of the divine that was very common in, in Iberian um, um, Catholicism. Um, um, but then, of course, Catholicism evolves, right? It, it changes, um, and and it also changes in, in, in a place like Portugal, and to the point that when Portuguese themselves in later centuries come to Africa 
and and see scenes that once upon a time you know were 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 introduced by Portuguese many centuries earlier. They don't recognize these these Catholic elements any longer, or, or they think they're ridiculous. Um, um, they they see it as a form of decadence, right? Um, and I think the same happens uh, here in North America. That that um, Irish people or 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 you know Italian Catholics, um, um, all of this uh, felt very very foreign. Uh, to them, and and the same, of course, happened with 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 these black communities, right? Um, the the Roman Catholic Church, the the post Tridentine Roman Catholic Church, also felt very different uh, to them. Yeah, it also felt like a, for, a foreign religion almost um, to them, right? Um, and and. Uh, you know, this is of course a whole other story, but but um, I, I feel in a way this helps us also, uh, Alison, to understand why Catholicism is today facing such a crisis in places such as Latin America uh, or Africa. Right, and I think part of of the explanation here is that there was this tendency to impose, you know, Catholic orthodoxy. Um, um, to impose, you know, one specific understanding of what Catholicism was supposed to be, rather than understanding and accepting that Catholicism is is a house with many rooms, right? And 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 that uh, people should have the freedom to express their understanding of of Catholic faith in a way that they think is right. Um, um, but unfortunately, I think it, it took a while for the Catholic Church to learn that message. Um, and, 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 and this partially then I think also contributed to, to this lack of understanding, this neglect, um, and in, in Latin America, even, even a very uh, aggressive uh, approach against these Afro-Atlantic expressions of Catholic faith by, by the Catholic Church itself, right? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, and, you know, I think also that could be applied to, um, you know, Catholic studies, this, this lack of understanding of this, this area you're diving into. Um, and that, you know, leads me into my next question too. You know, we, you've now mentioned a couple times that, you know, previous scholarship has when discussing, you know, uh, slave religion, the focus has been on the, uh, influence of indigenous faith or uh, Protestantism. But, you know, there clearly from your book, there were uh, enslaved Catholics and they weren't just isolated to areas like Louisiana. They were uh, all over the country, as you explain. But so what can you what can you tell us about the enslaved Catholics that you write about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um Again, I would say the crucial point here is that previous studies are not wrong, right? In in highlighting the importance of missionaries, in highlighting the importance of of 
um, indigenous African uh, religious influences. All of that is important. Um, but again, what we need to stress is that we need to add this third element to the discussion, namely the fact that among the earliest uh, enslaved um, communities, uh, a significant number of people already identified as Christian, right? Uh, and there were to influence the way Christianity would evolve um, within um, um, uh, black communities, um, in, including here in North America, right? And, and there's evidence of that in, in Manhattan, uh, there's evidence of that in, in South Carolina, uh, Georgia, uh, very interesting uh, sources from the Sea Islands, uh, for instance, um, but unfortunately very limited in the information they, they give us, right? Um, but it's very difficult uh, for us to, under, to, to answer the question, how, how did this Catholicism look like, right? Because we don't really, really know. Um, what we can do, and what I did in my book, again, is, is using a comparative analysis, right? And, and say, well, it was probably similar to the type of Catholicism that existed in the Cape Verde Islands, that existed in, in the region of Congo, right? Um, or what I also do is I, I look for other places uh, where we find evidence of, 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 of a significant presence of Afro-Atlantic Catholics, um, and where we're lucky, lucky in the sense that we do have more sources. And, and one such place, fascinating place, Alison, is the Danish Virgin Islands, uh, where we had uh, missionaries from the Moravian Church uh, operating. Um, and, and, you know, in the assumption uh, that they are the first to, so to speak, you know, bring the message and the gospel and, and, and Jesus to, to, these, to these enslaved uh, communities, only to find out um, that um, many of them uh, were already familiar with Christianity. They had their own understanding of Christianity. And, 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 and in these writings of these missionaries from the Moravian Church, you learn right about how these communities were, were organized, um, how they would um, essentially honor um, their own understanding of, of, of Christian faith. Um, and, and that helps us, I think, um, to then uh, at least get an idea right, of, of how communities in Manhattan in the 17th century or on the, the South Carolina Sea Islands may have lived uh, their, their Christian uh, faith. Um, and, and, and just to, 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 to uh, conclude this question, what really comes, comes back again and again, uh, Alison, is, 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 is the term brotherhood. Right? Um, is, is the fact that these people perceive themselves as a community of, of brothers and sisters, right? the importance they give to mutual aid, uh, the importance of solidarity, not just with living members, but also with, with deceased members of the community. Um, those are elements that time and again are, are repeated um, and definitely must have been of crucial importance to these earliest um, African Christians to arrive in Manhattan, to arrive in, in South Carolina, for instance. You end the book by looking at the long-term influence of these Afro-Atlantic Catholics on the development of both you know, African fraternal traditions and evangelical churches. Um, 
what did their legacy look like when applied to religious traditions? Yeah, that's of course the most the most difficult question I, I tackled in my book. Perhaps also the most controversial chapter of my book. Um, admittedly, also the most speculative uh, chapter of my book. Um, but but look, right? Look, Alison. When I when I uh, read, for instance, the work of of someone like W. E. B. Du Bois, right, and and then he writes about black pro- Protestant churches in, in in the late nineteenth century, and and he writes, uh, what really singles out these churches is that they are, and I quote here, they are a center of social intercourse to a degree unknown in white churches, or he writes that that. Um, uh, all movements for social betterment are apt to center in these churches, or that uh, beneficial societies in endless number are being formed in these early black Protestant churches, right? Um, or, or when I look at, at the work of someone like Franklin Frazier, who in you know the Negro Church in America, very important book from 1964, also explains right the popularity of black evangelical churches with reference to the provision of social aid and, and social cohesion right then what do i find there i find there essential characteristics of brotherhoods yeah um and and i don't think that is a coincidence yeah uh, i think that that these churches built on something that was already there yeah um, and and I'm not the first one saying that, but what earlier scholars have said is, well, it was already there because it was an indigenous African form of mutual aid. And, and I don't want to deny that, but what I want to say is that, well, let us also look at another possibility. Let us also look at the possibility that these potentially were earlier forms of Afro-Catholic brotherhoods. Right? And that that is the place where, you know, um, um, black uh, Methodist, black Baptist churches uh, were to develop um, in, in later um, centuries. And, and um, you know, since we're speculating anyway, uh, Alison, um, you know, let us perhaps also look at, at some characteristics of, of black communities today in the United States, even among people who are not members of, of a Christian church. And, and look at the way uh, African-Americans address each other in today's society, uh, using the term brother and sister, right? Um, or um, you look at, at the use of necklaces with crosses that are so popular among African-Americans. Um, look at people organizing vigils with candles when a member of the community dies. Um, look at, at the strong solidarity uh, among African-Americans, right? More than, I would say, any other minority group in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, I, this could all be coincidences, but, but I do find their parallels to, to brotherhood traditions. And, and I don't think this is a coincidence. Um, um, and, 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 you know, if you think about it, right, um, brotherhoods, mutual aid societies, it's, it's, it's understandable uh, that such organizations were of crucial importance to, 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 to a community that has a history of slavery, right? 
because um, where where do you find solidarity as an enslaved person? The only people really you can you could trust as an enslaved person were people of your own community, right? The the the, the, the only ones you could trust was was each other. Uh, that was all they had, right? Um, hence, I think the importance of, of, of mutual aid societies, brotherhoods, can't be stressed enough. And, and I must also say that in the context of my research, I came across the work of a scholar I, I, I wasn't familiar with before writing this book. Um, his name is John Gigi, um, and he, he paid a lot of attention to, to the role of brotherhoods in, in black uh, evangelical churches, and, and I was fascinated by it. Um, and I think there's a very interesting connection to be made between his research and, and the theories I, I present in, in my book. Yeah, and I think we have time for um, one more question, uh, as I see the time's running out. But, you know, what are you currently working on? This might be a tough question since the book just came out, but uh, are there any lingering questions from your work on Afro-Atlantic Catholics that you're planning on pursuing, or has your work taken a new direction? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm a very, very uh, busy and hardworking person, Allison, and, and I, uh, doing research is really my passion. Um, and uh, currently, uh, maybe what I could share with, with people who are listening uh, to us is, is that I'm doing um, some research on a place I find increasingly fascinating, um, but very little research um, has been done about that place. And the place is, is, is an island. It's a tiny little island in, in the Atlantic, an African island. The name of the island is Anubon. Anubon. Uh, many people have probably never heard of it. Um, uh, it used to be a Portuguese colony. It later became a Spanish colony. It's part of Equatorial Guinea uh, today. Uh, but it has a fascinating uh, religious history. Um, and, and maybe I could, I could highlight one, one, one aspect that really fascinates me for, for, for our audience. Is, is that what you have on this island is that you had an, 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 an African uh, community uh, that embraced its uh, kind of its, its own form of, of, of Catholicism that had been introduced there by, by the Portuguese. Um, but then the community didn't have a priest. Um, so they essentially took Catholicism in their own hands, right? And, and they developed uh, their own form of, 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 of Catholicism, uh, but then faced a very fascinating problem. And that problem was that um, nobody could read on the island, right? Nobody could read on the island. And if you can't read, um, um, Alison, then you have a major problem in, in knowing, um, you know, when do we have to celebrate the saints? Um, you know, if we can't read, um, how do we know when Christmas is, right? And, and this is a tropical island, so there's no winter, there's no summer, the weather is always the same. Um, and, and what I found out is that they developed a very ingenious form of a calendar um, using a piece of wood um, with, with, with carvings, and, and that would help them to, to, to find out, even though they couldn't read, to find out, you know, what day of the year it was and when Christmas 
uh, would 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 come and what would be the first day of the year, etc. Uh, it's just one example, right? Of that 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 to me is so fascinating uh, to see what people in Africa would would do, right? The 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 length they would go to to honor. Uh, their understanding of of of, of Catholic faith, um, and at the same time, how little uh, we know about this history, uh, history that has been pretty much forgotten, um, um, that that very few scholars have paid attention to, and and perhaps this is also the the final point I would like to make, that that you know what I'm presenting here is perhaps much more than just a book. It is it is uh, a potential department, right? That 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 we could establish, because um, that's really what I would love to happen. Um, that I would love someone to come and help me, right? Building a department here and with graduate students assisting me exploring important archives all over the world. So my focus was primarily on, on Portugal, but so much more can be discovered in the Vatican, uh, in Seville, I'm thinking also archives of the Moravian church. There's just so much work that still needs to be done. Uh, also works in, in time for, in, in terms of field work, right? Um, would love to have graduate students working with me uh, in the Cape Verde Islands, uh, in Anubon, in Angola, in Brazil, um, and help me to get a better understanding of, of the still existing uh, brotherhoods uh, that exist in those places. Um, because understanding those organizations implies a better understanding of the early history of Christianity in Africa and the African diaspora including here in, in North America. And, and there is, Alison, there is, this is a form of urgency here, right? Because um, sadly, uh, these mutual aid associations um, uh, that you know, developed out of Catholic uh, lay brotherhoods, these mutual aid societies are disappearing. Uh, they're disappearing like snow in the sun. Uh, and this has to do, of course, with the explosive growth of, of Pentecostal churches uh, in Africa, uh, in Latin America, uh, that offer people a modern form of brotherhood, you could say. Um, but the price people pay is that if you join such a church, then you're expected to turn your back uh, to all African and Catholic aspects uh, of, of your legacy. Right. Um, so this is what I would love to do, uh, Alison. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, my time is limited. Um, I'm also the director of the Institute of European Studies. So I have a lot of administrative tasks. Um, but um, as I said, uh, I hope that one day this book will be more than just a book. It will give birth to a new department. And, and that would be. Yeah. And, you know, that would be a. a I'd be very interested in seeing the scholarship that would be produced in such a department if it was formed. But, uh, Jerome, thank you for being on the show. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to, to be with you, uh, Alison. I hope people will um, um, enjoy reading the book. Um, and who knows, uh, maybe in a couple of years we meet again with, with, with some yeah. uh, research on this fascinating topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, this has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a New Books Network podcast.